Okay, so I'm, get, I'm giving a talk this morning that's entitled The Imaginal Faculty, What Is It? This is the question that I've been asking myself for the last couple of months as I've begun to think about today. What, what is the idea and what is this concept that Banti terms the imaginal faculty? And why does he and Sabuti give it so much weight? Indeed, Banti has said that without the imagination, the spiritual life is not possible. And elsewhere, he says, without empathy for, that is, an imaginative connection with life and the world around us, enlightenment isn't possible. So clearly, it's very important. But what does the imaginal faculty mean and why does it matter so much in our spiritual lives? I don't think I've really ever known, but I do. My sense is that I know what it feels like when it's present or when it's been awakened or when it's been stirred. I know it. I know that the imagination and the imaginal faculty have a direct positive effect on my mental states. I also know what it feels like when it isn't present and when I'm not letting it in or I'm in conditions um, that don't support it. I know that at these times my life can feel dull, flat, uninspired, even miserable. And life can feel a bit pointless and rather bland. So I know whatever it is, is a vital force in my life. It is what keeps me going, especially when things are particularly tough. It's what fuels my faith. It's what feeds, supports positive states of mind. But what is it? So how can I talk to you about it? Yeah. How can I explain it, articulate it, point it out and illuminate it, illuminate it so we, myself and you, can develop it further, have access to its impact and the riches of it in our lives? So what I'm going to talk about is what does Sangharachita and Sabuti have to say? I'm going to share with you something of my experience of this faculty in my life. Then I'm going to suggest that we explore how it might show up in our lives. And then I'll just suggest a few pointers to show, to illustrate how we might open up to it further. So first of all, Sabuti, in his paper, Reimagining the Buddha, which I would recommend to you all in the seven papers, which you can get in a book form. I'm not on commission, by the way. Or you know you can download them from his website. 
and you can get yeah. them, borrow it from the library. Thank you, Barbara. So Sabuti, in conversations with Banti, says that Sangharachita invests the term imagination in a firmly dharmic significance. So we're using the word imagination in a particular way. And he refers to it as the vehicle of the Dharma life. The faculty by which we come to know the truth of things. Say that again. It's the vehicle of the Dharma life. The faculty by which we come to know the truth of things. And by which we come to know it and as it were become it. Elsewhere, Sabuti in the same paper says, it is a means of knowing that as it matures, combines and transcends reason, emotion and the senses, whether physical or visionary. So it's a means of knowing that as it matures, combines and transcends reason, emotion and the senses, whether physical or visionary. There's not many more long definitions, just one more. So this is his third um, definition. It is a power or capacity or faculty, I've added or faculty, power or a capacity or faculty of the individual having in it something that is more than the individual that transforms the objects of experience and unifies them It is a power or capacity or faculty of the individual having in it something that is more than the individual that transforms the objects of experience and unifies them. So do you know what it is? Hmm. So I didn't either. I get it sort of intuitively, but what it actually is, I'm really not any clearer. Apart from, it's a faculty that helps us to know the truth of things. So it clearly matters a lot if we want to know the truth of things. What does it mean then? So this is what Ratnaguna says in his book, The Art of Reflection, which I'm actually studying at the moment in, with my study group. It's a great book. 
So he says the imagination can't be pinned down by the language of reason. So no wonder it's hard to understand. Yeah? The imagination can't be pinned down by the language of reason. The meanings perceived by the imagination are less defined and more suggestive and intuitive than the meanings perceived by reason. The meanings perceived by the imagination are less defined and more suggestive and intuitive than the meanings perceived by reason. Imagination communicates things that reason by itself is unable to communicate. Imagination communicates things that reason by itself is unable to communicate. I found that so helpful. Thank, that's why, isn't it, that it's so difficult to get what it means from reading a book? So many words to describe a normal human faculty. A faculty that until the last 200 years was taken for granted and played an important part in everyone's lives. It was just considered okay and normal. However, today, we all live in an age when it's sort of only that concrete, tangible, measurable, scientifically proven that's valued. The imagination has been denigrated and it's all called, um, but it's just fantasy. It's nonsense. You can't measure it. You can't see it. So it's nonsense. The imaginal faculty isn't referring to fantasy. Fantasy implies that we are um, wanting to create an imaginary world, perhaps based in craving or hatred or a need to escape our current experience. It's not daydreaming. We don't mean that at all. We aren't painting by numbers when we're allowing the imaginal, imaginal faculty to be present and stirred. Banty is using the term imagination and the imaginal faculty in a very specific way. As the faculty by which we come to know the truth of things. This faculty combines and is beyond emotion and reason and intellect. Um, 
The truth of things, as in uh, enlightenment or insight, is very subtle. It's not easy to realise. And we certainly can't realise it by thinking our way to it. Although thinking is helpful. I'll come back to that. So the Buddha knew, after his enlightenment, that the truth of things was not easy. After his enlightenment, he initially decided not to share his realisation with anyone because he thought it was too deep, too subtle and too difficult for people to apprehend so that nobody would get it or understand it. Luckily for us, he was persuaded by Brahma, the king of the gods, by compassion that there were some people with little dust in their eyes, so who had little that would prevent them from uh, knowing what he was talking about. So he did share his realisation with his five ascetics who he'd been uh, journeying with before he set out on his own. Lucky for us. The truth, therefore, is not to be understood through the intellect or the emotions alone, although they may well be ways in, though through study and through engaging deeply with our spiritual friends and coming to know our deeper emotional selves. The truth is to be found through direct experience. Through this imaginal faculty. Through subtle knowing or intuitive knowing. <coughs> so the task is to come to recognise and honour and hone this type of knowing in us. That's what we mean by developing the imaginal faculty. It means recognising, honing and honouring this type of knowing in us, in our hearts and in our minds. And we need to polish it and bring it out. Because it's a key to a big, mysterious door. Right, you have to keep polishing it so it fits the lock. Are we getting closer to what it might be? What is it like in practice? What I'd like us to do, what we're going to do now, is I'm going to try and evoke something of the flavour of this imaginal faculty or intuitive knowing through something that's happened to me recently. So recently, I and a few others here, one or two, had a particularly, were very fortunate to see uh, the Tempest streamed live uh, at the cinema. Did anybody else go? You went to see it, really? Fantastic. So um, Helen, uh, Sarah Savannah's just telling us that she actually saw the Tempest in Stratford. You lucky woman. So it was a very, very vivid experience uh, that was awoken in me 
as a result of that um, trip to the cinema. So I'd like to share with you uh, three short parts of the play and the production and the impact they had on me. I just have to get my Shakespeare out. So I've got a large book here, Helen, which is my son's Children's Guide to Shakespeare, who were very good parents. So, just uh, say something about it. So, um, in this play, and many of you may already know this, the main character is Prospero. And he's been uh, banished from the city his city, and he's been shipwrecked. He was so was banished to sea, and he has been shipwrecked with his daughter Miranda on an island. Prospero has magic powers, and he uses them to enslave a gentle, benign spirit called Ariel to help him get his revenge on his enemies who banished him. So... This particular production of The Tempest is quite amazing and um, cutting edge in terms of technology. So the scenery and the use of coloured lights together with pro digital project projection, which included floating spirits uh, hanging around in the air, really, looked like they were really spirits, yeah? Uh, was very magical and extremely subtle and beautiful and vivid. The background music and the, per the percussion was, extreme, was very mysterious and evocative. And of course, Shakespeare's words, I can't read my writing, are always beautiful, unlike my handwriting, <laughs> poetic and evocative, and often elude to deep, subtle truths. So, for example, at the end of the marriage between Miranda, his daughter, and Ferdinand, who is the son of Prospero's enemy, Prospero turns to Ariel and pronounces... He's just, so he's just put an end to the marriage ceremony. He says, he's said, right, that's it, we're moving on. Okay, more poetically than that. And he says to Ariel, you do look, my son, in a moved sort, as if you were dismayed. Be cheerful, sir. Our revels now are ended. These are actors, as I foretold you, were all spirits, and are melted into air, into thin air. <coughs> and like the base, baseless fabric of this vision, the cloud-clapped towers, the gorgeous palaces, the solemn temples, the great globe itself, yea, all which it inherit shall dissolve. And like this insubstantial pageant, faded leave not a rack behind. We are such stuff as dreams are made of. And our little life is rounded with a sleep. We are such stuff as dreams are made of. And our little life is rounded with a sleep. 
so Prospero, Shakespeare, is evoking the truth of things through images, an insubstantial pageant. We are such stuff as dreams are made of, and our little life is rounded with a sleep. It's as if Prospero has realised that he is getting old, he is. And one day he will die, as will everyone else. And he's seen the empty nature of his anger and need for revenge. That's what begins to happen at this point of the play. So what was the effect? So my heart quivered and shook with these verses. And I found myself tingling and trembling. My whole mind and body, well, my whole mind and heart cracked to something much bigger. Certainly beyond what I call me and my world. Certainly bigger than the cinema. Or even the RSC in Stratford. It was as if my whole being was resonating with the subtle yet deeper knowing of the truth of Prospero's words, as well as with the colour, the beauty and the magic of the scene that was before me. All my senses were delighted and expanded. They were sort of boundless. So towards the end of the play, Ariel... Is now be, he's now free, he's been released by Prospero and he's, float, and he's high up in the air and he sings. So he's floating in the air and Ariel sings. Where the bee sucks, there suck I. In a cowslip's bell I lie. There I couch when owls do cry. On the bat's back I do fly. Ooh, is this touching anyone else? After summer merrily, merrily, merrily shall I live now under the blossom that hangs on the bough. Would you like it again? Where the bee sucks, there suck I. In a cowslip's bell I lie. There I couch when owls do cry. On the bat's back I do fly. After summer merrily. Merrily, merrily shall I live now. Under the blossom that hangs on the bough. How very beautiful, gentle imagery that's resonated with me. I find myself gently crying, not with sadness, but with the sheer beauty of the poetry. Thirdly, during Miranda and Ferdinand's wedding ritual, Prospero raises his staff, his magic staff, to give his blessings upon their marriage. Music plays and the stage becomes illuminated with beautiful, bright, vivid colour. Projected images of summer landscapes 
of deep green forests, rivers and a rainbow. Out of which manifest Juno and Ceres, the goddess of the harvest and the queen of heaven. Can you imagine? They really did manifest out of it. The whole stage uh, glowed with blue and green light and the air was filled with the goddesses heavenly singing blessings upon the couple. It was like being in a visualisation practice. It was like being in green Tara's realm. My heart was filled and unlimited, expanded by the beauty and the subtle, refined nature of this. I felt so, I felt, um, wish I could read my writing. I felt so deeply nourished for days afterwards. It was as if my whole being, in all its depths and heights, had been met, blessed and expanded, as if I or it, don't know which, became limitless, open and sensitive. So perhaps this gives us some clues as to what we mean by the imaginal faculty. So, how does the imaginal faculty, this subtle intuitive knowing, show up in our lives? So let's remember first of all that the imaginal faculty is a faculty that we all have. It's normal. It's just that we might have learnt that it isn't, but it is. It's the potential to see and know subtle truth. So where does it show up? How could we allow it in a bit more, give it a bit more credence, honour it, turn towards and appreciate it? So Banti and Sabuti, in their conversations, focused on three areas that might help us to look for it where we could look and where we might focus. So these are empathy with life, responding to beauty and imagining the Buddha. So empathy with life, what this is about is having a resonance with the world around us and other people, knowing that everything is alive. And uh, I'm going to read a poem about this from Banti. This is a poem he wrote a long time ago. (coughs) (coughs) And, uh, yeah, I just would invite you to think about when do you have a similar experience? Because I bet you do. It's called The Animist, and he wrote it in 1952. Perhaps he was facing Mount Kanchenjunga when he when he wrote it. I feel like going on my knees to this old mountain and these trees. Three or four thousand years ago, I could have worshipped them, I know. But if one did so in this age, they'd lock her in a padded cage. We've made the world look mean and small and lost the wonder of it all. And lost the wonder of it all. 
when and where do we resonate with the world around us? With its aliveness and its ever-changing, insubstantial, mysterious nature. With the awesomeness and the wonder of it all. So be it, looking at a pebble on a beach. Where did it come from? What were all the millions of forces that led to that pebble being there? How old is it? Is it under a clear, starlit heaven? Like you get at Taraloka and elsewhere. How many billions of light years away are those stars? How small we can seem. Yet, where did the elements that make us come from? For me, I've got a particular thing, a resonance with ferns. <coughs> and mosses and wooded, wooded glades with streams and little waterfalls. When I'm around those, I get goosebumps. Something speaks to me, which is not rational. I get it. My heart is moved and quivers. Can we let that in a bit more when it happens? Can we turn towards it consciously, knowing it's important and has got a message for us? What is it that does it for you? Okay, what about other people then? What about empathy with other people? How do we sort of have a sense of what's going on for other people? Well, we can use our imagination in the same way. Imagine what life looks like or feels like to them. How might they experience the world in their shoes? They too want to be happy and free of suffering just like us. Why should their experience or wishes be very different or any different to ours? Banti says that imagination is the key to ethics. So what about the woman who's sitting next to you today? What might her world be like? What about a Muslim woman who's living in New York City? Or Theresa May? She's a human being. I don't like what she's doing either. Yeah, but she is. What about the person at the other end of the phone line who's ringing you from a call centre? And what about the homeless person who's just round the corner outside here. Where does empathy with life show up for you? And what might it be what what might it take to show up a little bit more so we believe it? Okay. <clears throat> 
So responding to beauty then. So first of all, let's think about what beautiful is. So it's not just lovely or pleasant, which are great, aren't they? Yeah, we do need loveliness and we do need pleasantness. Yeah, but we're not talking about that. So one way of thinking about beautiful, it's something that's beautiful, is it, it leaves us speechless. There's no other words to describe it. It's almost like beautiful is as far as you can go. There's something a bit sublime. It shakes our heart, fills us, charges us. So Bhante talks about, uh, Sangharachita and Sabuti talk about uh, our response to beautiful action. So what, what happens to us when we see someone being very kind or generous? Or rejoicing in someone's merits very skillfully. What was it like for you if you came to the Amitabha evening on Thursday here? What was that like? Yeah. Was it was there an element of responding to beautiful, the beautiful in that for you? Did it move you deeply? So I can be very moved by people's kindness. Diane Andy is one of the kindest women I've ever met. And uh, when I'm feeling a bit grumpy or my perspective's limited and I'm a bit irritated, which I have to work with, Diane Andy can nearly always bring a kind perspective. I'm moved by it deeply. Thank you. What about generosity? I'm, I'm remembering uh, last year at the Order Convention... We had a fundraising appeal to launch this new fund called the Future Dharma Fund. And uh, there was, some, uh, it was a really good uh, presentation by Amala Vadra, pretty uplifting, very uplifting. Thousands of pounds were donated in 30 minutes. And, you know, Tree Ratna Buddhists are not known for their wealth. Well, there are some people, but do you know what I mean? It's not... A, um, it's not a, uh, a community of millionaires. Thousands of pounds was raised in 30 minutes, pledged. That was very moving, very beautiful. And then, of course, there's the, the beauty of words. So, as in the tempest, perhaps there's the beauty of words in uh, the Heart Sutra. Did you, have you ever read the Heart Sutra and you thought, what on earth is this? And yet you know what it is. Does anybody happen to anyone? Yeah? So, words that are refined, strong, but speak and evoke subtle truths. It works much better, doesn't it, reading the Heart Sutra than just saying everything is empty. Yeah? And then there's the beauty of poetry. And the beauty of magic in a story. A story that talks to you of a subtle truth. We're going to have one of them today. It's the beauty of the images. It's the images that speak to us. And these images are often archetypal. It's like they're known to many in, in humankind. They, they transcend often race and gender. And, you know, they, they're just out there. 
So archetypal symbols like the sun and the moon and a deep forest and wolves and warrior queens, you know, you'll all, we'll all have our version. And of course, Banti talks a lot about the beauty of art and of music, yeah, and song, beautiful song, mantra. How do we decide if it's beautiful or not or beautiful enough? Can we just go with what we fancy? Yeah, it's, it's quite hard to put this into words. But what we can do is tune in to the impact of that beautiful thing that we think is beautiful. What is the impact on us? Does it open the heart? Does it clarify and refine the mind? <laughs> Does it help us to tune into the subtle? Does it free up our emotions, subtle emotions? Remember, the truth of things is subtle. So what we're trying to do is be more aware and tune in more to the subtle. <coughs> and remembering that what we dwell upon is what comes into being. Banti... Uh, I don't know where, but somewhere, talks about the importance of refining our senses so that over time we can intuit more refined truths. So he talks about doing what you love and refining it. So I'm remembering, um, there used to be an order member called Suketu. Is he called Olaf these days? Anyway, he's called something else these yeah. days. So he, you, he is a great singer and he used to really love rock music and rock singing. And he took Banti's advice very, very seriously and literally. And he joined a choir to learn to sing Mozart and opera as a way of refining what he loved. Yeah. It's not about being a snob, this. It's about wanting to refine the mind. On Friday evening, um, I went out for a meal with Diane Andy. We were refining our senses, weren't we, Diane Andy? <laughs> our gastric senses, yes. And uh, we were talking about images that move us and I, uh, that I could turn to for inspiration in some art, particularly in lino cutting. And I remembered then the unfurling fern, which hasn't just been very present for me at all. For a couple of years. Anyway, it came in this vision uh, image of um, an unfurling fern, and I had this huge yes response in my heart. It was resonating. So I went home and I looked up images on the internet all about ferns. And, uh, and then I woke up in the morning and wrote about it and read some poetry. And then I went downstairs to the kitchen, and you know what? I didn't even think about emptying the dishwasher. Because my mind state was so different. And emptying the dishwasher is a very helpful thing to do. But it's also a habit. I'll do, some, I'll do my art and read some poetry once I've finished my jobs. Is that familiar? I haven't got time to read some poetry. Or to make a lino print because I've got to do my jobs. Yeah. 
This time, I was so in tune with the beautiful and the mysterious and the magical. My mind was changed, and I was not in utilitarian mode. I was in the realm of aesthetic appreciation, where we're more likely to intuit the truth. For years, I've been thinking, I must get out of this utilitarian mode. I must stop it which is a bit utilitarian, isn't it? So that I have time for art, poems and nature. What I need to do is enter the mandala first. Pay attention to the beautiful and the subtle. So this is what comes into being. I'm nearly there. I might just be run over a couple of minutes. Okay. So thirdly then, there's a lot in this, isn't there? So we're, I'm going, we're recording it and we can make it available. So imagining the Buddha. So Sabuti begins the paper, reimagining the Buddha, with a very clear statement. To live the Buddhist life, to become like a Buddha, we must imagine the Buddha. The goal must be embodied in our imagination and our deepest energies gathered in an image of, of what we are trying to move towards. To live the Buddhist life, to become like a Buddha, we must imagine a Buddha. The goal must be embodied in our imagination, our deepest energies gathered in an image of what we are trying to move towards. How does imagining the Buddha, a Buddha, show up in your life? Doesn't mean you have to start wearing yellow robes, you know. What was your response when you first walked into this or another shrine room? What qualities of the Buddha, a Buddha or a Bodhisattva do you hold in your heart that move and inspire or motivate you? What is it? We're going to have an opportunity to think about that a bit more later. And what do those Buddha qualities look like in daily life? And when you see them, what's the effect? So in 2013, I went to Bhutan with Rachel and others, very fortunate, and they all went off to climb a mountain, but I couldn't because my leg hurt, so I got taken to uh, the, the uh, monastery where Dilgo Kiense had been the abbot. And I went into this enormous shrine room where there was a Padmasambhava that was, well, it was bigger than this room, probably another floor. And before I knew it, I was prostrate on the floor. There wasn't any intellect involved in that, I tell you. I was on the floor. And then I couldn't quite work out what I was doing. And then I realised that next to Padmasambhava was another Rupa who I'd thrown myself in front of. It was a Rupa of Dilgo Kiense, who I've always felt a connection with. 
But it wasn't me who made that decision to prostrate. That was me responding to, the, to a Buddha, as far as I'm concerned, to an enlightened being. What do we respond to and how? <coughs> so just to finish off then, how might we hone, further develop and clarify in us the imaginal faculty, this faculty of imagination? So the first thing I think is look out for it. Look for it showing up in your life in small ways. It doesn't have to be grand. Write about it. Talk to your friends about it. Believe it. What colours do you respond to? Yeah? What elements of nature? They're, they're all ways in. Give it space and time to talk to you, to influence you, to work its magic in you. Secondly, put yourself in places and situations where it's more likely. So think about your conditions. Where is that? Is it in nature? looking at the arts, going to art exhibitions of beautiful art? Is it playing with creativity and colour and form? Perhaps it's talking to spiritual friends or perhaps it's listening and talking and reading poetry. Engage in rituals. So this is what the puja is about, isn't it? It's a combination of beautiful verses and subtle truths. Music, song, mantra and using our body to prostrate and offer things to the shrine. It uses all of us. Be fascinated by the beautiful, the symbolic images. Remember, what we pay attention to is what comes into being. Have a project, have a scrapbook, collect green stuff, well, whatever colour does it for you. Surround yourself with whatever it is that moves your imaginal faculty. And as if you haven't had enough, I'm going to finish with a lovely poem by Arnanda from this book, An Average Morning in the Galaxy. <laughs> Something needs to go out from this faintly growling kitchen to leave the hot ashes and lose itself in trackless star fields. Something needs to go back to the before time of wonder and living rocks. It will not rest until it is utterly lost until the last friendly light has been long left behind. It needs the biggest space there is, otherwise it will shrivel 
to a rattling thing that counts hours and weighs kindness. Something needs to forget duties and promises, to stand still all night under the star webs, under the inconceivable codes, until recognition flashes between us, until the mind's absolute zero shimmers, until I shine unstintingly down on the tender speck of life, I used to call home. Thank you.